All right, guys, um, you can turn to Colossians. Now, uh, just to give you a brief snapshot of uh, what's going on, it's a, a really cool text. We've just uh, had this beautiful, poetic, we've had this awesome poem that we've gone through in verses 15 through 20. Um, really exalting Christ uh, for who he is um, as uh, the preeminent one, as the supreme one, as the one who's created everything, right? The uncreated, uncreated and created things, who, who's uh, the firstborn of, of creation and also new creation. Uh, so we get this huge exalted view of Christ. And hopefully what's happening in the Colossian church right now is people being brought to uh, sort of a fork in the road, right? Because... In their mind, you know, they kind of didn't really like the flesh. You know, they loved wisdom, they loved learning, but they, they were wanting that one day get rid of this flesh and be a spirit somewhere. And all of a sudden, uh, we have uh, the person who's actually redeeming you, actually redeeming you out of, out of flesh. <laughs> all right? And so now they have to not only see that, that this person is a God-man, uh, but also they realizing that, that he's created everything and that has something to, that, that bears witness against what now, what do they do with their life considering that that's a reality? Uh, well, obviously the conclusion is worship. The conclusion is devotion. Uh, so it's very interesting. I think this falls right in line, even though it kind of gets dreary, but I think it falls right in line uh, with what Paul is trying to do here because he exalts Christ uh, to his highest place, that is the highest place, and then he begins to continue uh, from the, the poetic, from this beautiful poem to helping us understand now our present reality. Okay, and he does that uh, through some very interesting texts here, as you guys have hopefully read already. Uh, we're going to walk through the text and uh, see what God has in store for us. Uh, he starts out by saying, "And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds." So <laughs> he starts out the text here, uh, really humbling us as humans. So he's the other. He's the only one that's not human, that's not created. And then he says, now, for those of you who are human, right, the rest of y'all, he says, let's just understand what your state is, uh, that you uh, were once alienated, hostile, mind, and doing evil deeds. Now, you might say to yourself, um, wait a minute, what's going on here? It's, when you usually see uh, these kind of statements, there's an assumption that's being made here that we see actually in Ephesians 2. Uh, the assumption is that we're dead. Okay, and so uh, when you see alienated, hostile mind doing evil deeds, um, his point isn't just that you're doing all these things, it's that we as humanity are in a, basically a graveyard doing all these things. Okay, because if the assumption, and I say that you're dead, if I say you're dead as people, Ephesians 2, chapter 1 says that we are dead uh, in our transgressions and sins, okay, uh, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't, I don't feel dead, I don't, I don't look dead, right? You might be thinking, what does that mean? And, and the best way that I can, I, can, I can give us a picture is it's almost God is saying because of the fall, what's happened is that the whole world, all of, all of creation finds itself sort of in this spiritual graveyard, and that, every, and that all of our being, all that what we do, all of how we live, everything that we're doing, right, living like we're live people, being like loving like we're live people, caring for each other like we're live people, all the stuff that we're doing, though, is done in this spiritual graveyard of trespasses and sins. It's in this, gra it's in this dead place, and we have no way out. 
And so here in particular, he's, he's assuming that we already get that you're dead. And because you're dead, these right here, alienated, hostile mind, doing evil deeds, which we'll go into, are just manifestations of your decomposition. Right? It's just the way that uh, affirms our deadness. So if you don't think you're dead, then God says, let me just give you some examples of what your deadness looks like. So he starts with this sense of alienation. All right, that you and I are alienated from God. Now, when I think alienated, it can come off like God is actually just, just basically distancing himself from us. But it's kind of a twofold. It's like God's distancing himself from us because we have actually turned our back on him. Okay, it's a sense of being without God. And in fact, when, you, when you're reading the Old Testament, one of the main beautiful things for the people of Israel to, to remind them that they're the people of God was that God was with them, that his presence was with him. And so when you knew that you had done something that was, that was not good, when you knew you had, you had angered the holy living God, what he did was he took his presence from you, okay? And so that theme in the Bible, you know, we talk about in our church is covenant, sin, exile, restoration, right? You have, he gives us a covenant, and if we fall into sin, he puts us in exile. But exile isn't necessarily like him taking you to another place, which is what he does in the Old Testament. But it's actually when, him, when he puts you in that other place, what he's really saying is that you've, I've removed myself from you. You don't have God's presence. And some of us, you know, the, the scary thing, some of us were cool with that, right? Because he, now hear this. What the Bible's trying to show us, and the way we are as humans, is that we try to live life, guys, and we try to figure out a way to have a self-existence and joy without God. That's basically the plight of the human. That left unto ourselves, we're trying to figure out how do we kill God, how do we remove him, how, do we, how are we alienated from him, and that we still get joy, we still get purpose, and we still get this beautiful self-existence without him. So, so if, you're feel, if you're feeling like that, just understand that's, that's part of your deadness. That's part of, if you're a believer, that's part of your old nature rising up. If you're an unbeliever, it's part of just reminding you that you're dead. That we are, we hear, man, God removed his presence? Sweet. I don't have to worry about holiness anymore. I don't have to worry about right living. I don't have to worry about caring. Okay? So what, so what he does in Old Testament, he removes himself from us. And when you think about that, think about it. God created you for himself. So in God's mind, when he talks about removing himself from you, what he's really saying is he's saying, in essence, you stop really being human. You stop. When God is out of the picture, you lose purpose. I lose purpose. That basically, it's almost as if you don't don't exist anymore. Because to exist without God is non-existence, as it were. Because God is all that matters. So when God, so when God does that, he's trying to help the people see, like, you're actually now being dehumane, that, that you are now, you're, you're not even living according to who you are. You're not experiencing purpose. You're not experiencing worth. But I want you to. So alienation, in a sense, is he's saying you were once alienated, apart from God, a stranger, that God doesn't even know us because of what we've done. But not only that, he tells us, strange, cut off, separated. He tells us that, uh, we got an example of this in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 12. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So if you didn't take my word for it, here it is in Scripture. 
that God, God sees when, when we are alienated from God, we're strangers to God before, before Jesus and the cross, he's saying that you and I, we have no hope. We're totally, we're just apart from God. Without God in the world. So life becomes finding a self-satisfying mode of existence in ignorance of God, which is if you, I know my story, I came to Christ when I uh, was 18, 19 years old, and that was my life. Like, I'm um, just trying, I don't know if that was, um, if you've come really young or, or, my life was, okay, how do I live for, how do I be God in my life and actually try to experience some sense of self-satisfaction so I can justify being alive? So that's where we are. So. He moves on and tells us, so you are alienated, but you're also hostile in mind. So we're strangers, we're apart from God before Christ. Uh, but then he tells us that we're hostile in mind. And in this sense, um, attitudes toward God is one of hostility and hatred. Now, when we share our faith, sometimes we might see people who are very hostile to God, right? We know people who are hostile to God, and that's easy. Okay, we go, okay, I get that. So you're in this graveyard of trespasses and sins. All that we, all, all that we can do is just kind of sin and do these things, be alienated from God. We can be hostile in mind. But what's interesting about hostile in mind, I love that he uses that language because I feel for some of us, uh, the passive people might go, well, I don't hate God. I don't, I, don't, I don't curse God. I don't talk bad about God, right? I don't, and we can kind of think that our, our inaction, you know, our neutrality, like God can do his thing and I can do my thing and I'm okay. But again, when you understand what he's shown us in verses 15 through 20, that all of life is for Jesus to not recognize God as supreme creator, to not recognize God as your king is to hate God. Because he's the one, he created you for himself. And so for you to turn your back and to say, no, thanks, God, but I'm going to do my own thing, in essence, is to hate him. So both passive indifference, but even passionate hatred, they both are hatred in the same to a holy God who's created everything for his purpose. Well, he says, you and me were alienated, and we had a a mind of hostility and hatred uh, toward God. So aggressive hatred, passive hatred. Uh, he focuses here, and notice what he does just to affirm that, is he's, he's, he's talking about not just in the sense of you doing these things, but we're talking mind. Now, when you see hostile in mind, make sure you don't go too far with that because this point there is just talking about your devotions. What do you care about? So the real question you can ask yourself, even as you think about this, as if you're an unbeliever or if you didn't do all these bad things, but you're kind of thinking you're neutral, God is basically saying, if your desires aren't for Christ... That's hatred to God. Hostile in mind. If, that, if, 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 there's something in your, if there's something in your being that gets more attention, more passion than Jesus, he's saying that's hatred toward a holy God. So he's talking here, when he says mind, it's really like the sense of when he, when he talks about love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, and mind. He's not trying to bifurcate. I know we teach that sometimes. That's not true. He's, trying, he's not trying to separate our, our body and our soul. He's trying to talk about love God with everything you got. And the same thing here, he's saying hostile in mind. He's saying in your being and who you are, you don't really give a rip about God. You're antagonistic. You're toward, you're against uh, him. Continues on. So alienated, hostile in mind. 
And in this piece of doing evil deeds, it says, so if, you don't, if you still don't think, so you, you, you're a stranger to God, uh, think of your life in this graveyard, you're, you're hostile in mind, but also think of, your, think of your deeds, think of what you do, right? Uh, Isaiah 59 talks about this guy. It says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, which is true, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Uh, just, a clear, just a clear affirmation that, that, that the things we do, God is saying they're all done in this, in this graveyard of trespasses and sin, in this place um, that we can't get out. And these things affirm our deadness. They affirm our evil. They affirm that God should be separate from us because this is how we operate. And that God says because of your sin, because of your iniquity, because of the things we do, he says, I've removed myself from you. Now, this, this verse here, uh, again, I love how he, he encapsulates this with every different person because these kind of verses uh, can, people like my wife, you know, she's an absolute deer, and you can kind of have trouble uh, when you're not as jacked up as me, you know, you don't just, like, I sin really good, you know, and so I don't have a lot of problems dealing with verses. I mean, you don't have to take me through, like, three points for me to recognize that I'm jacked up and need, need Savior because I'm because I'm just really sinful. But, but some of you guys um, might take a lot of pleasure and, and, and feel really good about your goodness. Uh, some of you guys, some of you might, you know, think, well, you look at your life and I'm talking evil deeds and you're going, yeah, okay, by faith I think I'm evil. But, man, I think I'm, re- I'm really nice, though. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't really do too much. See, see like Aunt Patty, she's kind of like, I, I, I feel you, bro. Because you are. You, you, I'm saying, you, you are. You're awesome, right? So, um, but, what, but what God is trying to tell us uh, through the text here is for, for those sinful sinners like myself and those like nice sinners, you know, like Sarah and Jamie and Ann and the rest of y'all, you know, you know, Laura, nice sinners, right? You sin sweet with birthday cakes and stuff. He's saying that all of us, all of us are evil and that our hearts, our hearts wish, apart from grace, we wish God would just be gone. And we don't want to have anything to do with him. And we want to be our own God. Look what it says. Um, he says, and you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he, he starts this thing off and he's talking to uh, these people and he's helping them understand their journey. When you think of the story of redemption, he's saying, listen, here's where you were. This is what you were about. But then he goes on and says, now, and in some translations, like this says, he has now, but some trans- translations says, like, but, uh, you probably see that in a few, like in even in Ephesians 2, almost a sense of like, but God, like that basically this was the track that you and I are on. We were in this, this, this graveyard and we weren't going to get out and we were headed toward total and continual destruction forever. And then what God has to do is he has to step in. Why? Because of two things. Remember, you're in a graveyard, like you are dead. Uh, we're dead. And then all these things aren't just living people doing bad things, which makes them go to hell and be destroyed. It's dead people affirming that they're dead, which is why God needs to destroy them. Do you see that? These things just tell on us and say, you actually are dead because look at you. And what God says, he says, but he has now reconciled in his body of flesh uh, by his death uh, us, right, in order to present you holy and blameless uh, above reproach before him. Let me continue on. 
Let's look at this, these verses here, guys. In order to present you uh, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Actually, I want to start with he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Continue on, guys. What I'm going to do, there was, a, there was a, a slide before this. I'm going to go ahead and go through this slide talking about what all these things mean. And hopefully, I hope, is that slide, do you see the slide we just put in, we put in, Eric? Thanks, Doug. Can we put that up, please? All right. So what I want us to understand is I want us to think back um, to verses 15 and, and through 20, and I want you to think about uh, what he's saying here. Because we were talking a lot about firstborn status, if you remember, in verses 15 through 20. And what he's doing here, he says, look at these words. He gives his words like to present. This, this reiterates that he's able to have firstborn status by experience the full reality of physical death. So, so if you remember, uh, he talks about us being reconciled by his blood. And then look here, look, look at the terminology he uses. He uses, why would you use this kind of terminology? Where do you see this in Scripture? He has not reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Why would you think he would say that? And what I'm trying to help us understand and train us in is that when you're reading the Scriptures, and we've talked about it before, remember the people he's writing to. Remember what he's trying to communicate. He's communicating to people that really had a problem with Jesus being the one who was going to reconcile the world to God because it was a man a man was going to reconcile, a man is going to do this. But actually, what God is trying to show us is that not only is a man going to do this, it actually takes a man. It takes someone who actually physically dies, who experiences the very death that he's going to conquer. It takes actually the very flesh, it takes that flesh to be beaten down so that it rises again triumphantly. And so he's pointing right to the, the heart of what was going on in the, in the first century of the Greeks. Uh, where they were thinking about wisdom, as they were thinking about uh, the flesh and, and all these different things, he's saying, listen, actually, the body of flesh is very important, that, the, that Jesus' flesh was essential uh, to the reality of the cross and what God was doing in redemptive history for God to save his people. So what he does, he says, man, God uses uh, the flesh uh, in the full reality of physical death to bring about uh, reconciliation, uh, this whole firstborn of new creation. Also, thanks, bro, uh, the means of reconciliation uh, in the body of his flesh. So there's two things I want you to get. There's uh, the means of reconciliation was in his body uh, through the flesh. Uh, and then there's the object of his reconciliation. So, he, so the reason, so he does this through his body. And the reason why he does this for you and me is so that we might be holy and blameless. So that's me just trying to help us understand what was going on in verse 22. So he, so he dies for the fact of trying to reconcile us, right? And then uh, what he does, the reason why is to make us holy and blameless. Now, let's look at what that means. Oh, one last thing. As you see, to, as you see, uh, to present... Uh, notice the thinking of uh, the, sacri- the, the, the reality of sacrifice. When you're, when you're in your Old Testament, and he talks about the sense of present. When I was reading, I was like, present, huh? Why would he, why would he use the word present? Uh, did you guys think of that? Like, why would he use the word present? Well, when you think about what's going on all throughout Scripture. 
is there the sense of, of God, what happens to the people of God is that they present sacrifices, right, to the Lord. Uh, and then the Lord, in receiving those sacrifices, says, okay, now I have, I, because of this sacrifice, I'm taking this blameless sacrifice. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that, that sacrifice and I'm going to place that on a sinner. And I'm going to take the sin and place it on the blameless sacrifice. And so I, I think it's fair to say that he's using this word present, and he's wanting us to get this concept of sacrifice. He wanted us to think about Old Testament of sacrifice. And the reason why I think I'm pretty confident in this, because then right after he talks about to present, he uses this concept of holy and blameless and above reproach. And so I want you to see that Old Testament phraseology uh, that Paul is trying to use here, is that uh, he's, he's basically saying, He's that basically what we're doing is we're offering a sacrifice that basically Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice for sinners. And then what we do is we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. But also it's this concept of bringing someone before a judge. Right. It's this concept of of not only do you offer a sacrifice, but when you offer the sacrifice, now the person who's receiving it has to say that it's of worth. Right. Because you can offer a sacrifice as we see in Genesis. And what happens? Right. When when Cain offers a sacrifice, Jesus, God doesn't accept it. God says, what's up with this? Okay, and so, so there's a concept that you're, stand, that you're before a judge who actually has to receive the sacrifice. And that's the beauty of Jesus is that God, that Jesus dies on a cross. But actually, not only is it just like the death and it's just, is what it is, but the death, we're all going, okay, is God going to accept this? And he actually does. And the reason why we know he does because Jesus rises from the dead. So it seems to be an implicit theme of Christ's death that, we are, that we've seen in uh, verse 20 last week. It seems that there's a continual theme and a presentation of those who are without blemish as a sacrifice to God. So it seems, again, what God does is he tells us in Christ, Christ is our sacrifice. He dies for us, and then he places his perfection on us. And then what God says is then he looks at us as his sacrifice, but he sees us as a sacrifice without blemish because of Jesus. But we're sacrificed now. So I, I, I say that because I know sometimes we always talk about the sense of like, God doesn't see me, but he sees Jesus. I'm like, yeah, kind of. Because the scriptures don't teach totally that. The, te- the scriptures actually teach that actually he makes you righteous because of Christ. It's not that, again, I keep saying that because I want get, to get that out of our heads, that, 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 that pop culture Christianity where it's kind of like you're standing before God and it's like Jesus right here and you're just making sure your God doesn't see you, you know, and God is like, well, who's behind you, Jesus? And, you know, and you kind of do this whenever Jesus moves, you know, a hand. And it's like, and that's not what's happening, like hoping God doesn't see you and he just sees Christ. Like, no, his blood was shed for you that he actually makes you righteous and so you can stand before God because of Christ, not because of anything you've done, and God actually sees you as righteous. Okay, so the presentation is not, this one other, this, and these are just thoughts as I was wanting us to um, understand how to, how to interpret the text. I want us to see one last piece. Like, notice something that's interesting here. The presentation, this presentation of us being presented to God hasn't happened yet. Uh, it has not taken place, and we'll be at the climax of Jesus' saving purpose. So... And that's not sexy, but that's just a reality that, and, and we're going to see, and I, can, and I think we can prove that as we continue on, that the presentation of us being holy and blameless, we are holy and blameless, but that actual presentation of us being holy and blameless actually hasn't happened yet, uh, which, which I think speaks to one of the main pushes in this text, and that's the issue of perseverance and endurance. You guys see that? 
So in order to present you holy and blameless, but he hasn't done that yet. And then we also see that too. We always hear about, you know, we're going to be presented as a, as a spotless bride and all those things, but we never think about the reality that we're not, he hasn't done that yet. But he will, but he hasn't done that yet. So there seems to be something that he's asking the people of God to be about. Um, and I'm totally into the sovereignty of God, but I'm just trying to be true to the scriptures. So he is now. So, so this is who you are. This is who we were. And then what God has to do is he has to do something outside of ourselves and make us alive. And then he does that by through the body of his flesh, reconciling us, taking his blood and actually dying as a human and, and as God. And then what God does, it says by, by his death, he basically, and even John Piper talks about that. He says what the, the, the glory of God, the, the, the burning glory of God is central at the cross. Like if you want to talk, talk to anybody about where can I see most prolific, most clear, uh, the, the height of God's power and glory, of his fame, of his honor and attention, where can I go and really see that? The, it seems the scriptures make it clear. It's at the cross. It's at the murdered Savior. It's when, it's when Jesus is murdered for you and me. It's when God shows the world his full glory, right? So I, I say that because just, just so we're not thinking it's before or after that, that what God does at that time uh, to, to set humanity free and all creation free is huge as we think about what does it mean for us today. And so what God says uh, through Paul is that he does this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach uh, before him. So now that's an interesting verse because I don't know about you, um, I'm going to talk through a couple of these verses here. First, you look at holiness. It means to be separated from sin and set apart from God. Okay? So, so his goal is for you and me to be set apart for God, right? Uh, is to be, to be blameless, to be perfect. Uh, and it sounds like he's asking for that, for, for that, that positional reality that we get in Christ, uh, for us to be experiencing that as we live life now. Is that fair? Because I think that we don't like to hear that. We like to... We don't like to wrestle with the fact that God actually wants us to be holy now. Is that fair? Okay, so he wants us to be, he wants us to be perfect. He wants us to remind the world of himself, okay? Um, another, re, another thing that he wants to do, uh, we see this, I'm sorry, in Ephesians 4, uh, 1, verse 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless uh, before him. Also in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now notice what God is doing here. So he talks about us being set apart for himself, and then he talks about us being without blemish. Um, so uh, blameless in a sense and, and without blemish. That Again, that, that, that marker of being a sacrifice for God, uh, that you and me are to be perfect, holy, uh, be without blemish. And then finally, um, beyond reproach, uh, which goes even a step further, right? It goes even a step further from uh, without blemish, right? Because uh, it means not only that we were without blemish, but that no one could bring a charge against us. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that, should, that should make you excited, okay? Because what, what, what God is saying is that in, in, in kingdom advancement, in, in what God has done in creation is that 
in Christ, so he makes you perfect, but it's not in the sense that not only that he makes you perfect and that basically uh, Satan comes and tries to find fault with you and then God, and then you have to prove yourself to be perfect. But the scriptures teach that because he defeated Satan, that, that you don't even have an accuser anymore. That it's not that just you're perfect and you're just glad you're perfect so you can prove it, but he's saying you're perfect and you don't have to even prove yourself. And, and that's why it's ridiculous for us to go about thinking that we need to work this thing out. We need, to, we need to figure out how to be righteous. We need to figure out how to be perfect because he's saying, ain't nobody even in your face anymore. Why are you running around so insecure, right, as we all are thinking, oh, my goodness, I got to do these things so that I can be this person or that person. Whereas the reality is you're, you're, you're above reproach. You're beyond reproach. God has said, I've already done it. Now you're free. So I would propose to you that the beyond reproach, that these terms are, are gospel-centered terms. They're terms that point toward Christ and that point toward the reality that you can live a life of freedom, that you're free now. But wait a minute. We've got to continue on. Before him, we just talked about this. God sees us now as we will be in heaven when we are glorified. Okay. Uh, that's another affirmation of that reality. Do you, do you, now, this is hard, because do you believe this? So that, that God sees you now based on who you will be when he fully glorifies us. Oh, I don't know about you. When I look at this text, I mean, I don't, I don't really get excited. Um, because I look at, uh, like, holy, blameless, beyond reproach, I'm like, I'm like, man, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like my narrative. Like, when I, when I think of myself, I don't, I don't necessarily think I'm blameless. Uh, I think of all the stuff that I, that's in my life. I think of uh, my sin, uh, things like that. And, and I don't necessarily, I don't think, I, I don't brag about, man, yep, I, that's me. That's my picture right there. Do you, does any, do any of you guys struggle with that reality? Do you struggle with seeing this narrative and going, man, I don't identify with that narrative. I identify with the narrative actually like a before a little bit where I'm kind of like, wanting God to get away sometimes and wanting to do my own thing, and I find myself getting caught up in the flesh. Like, that's, that's, that's usually my narrative. So what's happening? I mean, um, is it, does that mean the gospel doesn't have power? If that's your narrative, does that mean, what, did the, did the gospel fail? What's going on here? If God is saying this is who, who we are, but yet we're looking at our narrative and we're not necessarily feeling like it's, uh, they're coinciding, what's going on? Did you struggle with that when you read the text, or did you just move on as hope? Okay, well, I hope there's grace, right? I struggle with that. I'm like, man, <laughs> I look at my life. Yeah, blameless, beyond reproach. You know, standing before Him, uh, he, I'm whole. He's ho- I'm saying I'm supposed to be holy. He's reconciled me for these reasons. Is that your narrative? Well, let's look at some text here, guys. What happens, so say, you, say you're thinking that. You're thinking like me, and you're going, man, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like me. What's up with that? Uh, there's two responses that usually happens. So if you're thinking like, if, if that's your name, if you're thinking like that, usually um, we'll, we'll either abandon the gospel, okay? So usually what will happen is you, you come to that reality, so we become Christians, or you see the reality of what it means to, to say, I, I love Jesus, and then you look at it, and you go, oh, my goodness, like, I, I need to... You look at the standard of God being holy and perfect, and we kind of overwhelm ourselves, and we just abandon the gospel. 
And we say, well, I gave the college try. I guess I'll just go on and do my own thing, okay? Or, or what we do is we'll, we'll find ourselves saying, well, I, I don't know about that standard. I'm going to act like it really didn't exist. And what I'll do is I'll live a life where I'll have a little Jesus and then I'll kind of do my own thing and I can hope that I'll trick God one day, right? Um, and so that's, that's what we usually do. We'll, we'll kind of at some level, and I would propose that's actually abandoning the gospel too. You just fooled yourself. You're not fooling God. You're fooling yourself, okay? And so... So we either abandon the gospel or we try to actually um, improve upon the gospel, right? So either you abandon the gospel when you feel like, oh, my goodness, I'm not, I'm not stacking up. Uh, or we say, man, okay, God wants me to do all these things. And so we start saying, okay, I need to do this, I need to do this. And we find ourselves trying to improve upon the gospel. We find ourselves saying, man, I need to add to, I need to, add to the gospel. We don't say that, but we'll find ourselves going, well, if God said I need to be holy and blameless, that means I need to be nicer, and I, I need to give more money, and I need to help more people with their houses in the community. And if I'm supposed to be about I need to share my faith more, and I need to do all these things because this, this is who I'm supposed to be. Do you guys struggle with any of that? Do you struggle with approving upon the gospel because you see the standard, or, or you find yourself kind of going, bump this? I tried, man. I can't do it. I just can't. I, I just struggle with the same sin for 20 years. I'm tired of it. And you just kind of just kind of want to abandon. Anyone else there? Any of those places you struggle? Well, I want to propose that this is the answer. I want to propose Paul is setting us up. He's awesome. Praise the Lord. Because what he wants us to understand is that the, the, the goal of kingdom is not perfection, it's perseverance, right? His point, and this is, this is what blows me away at the gospel, is his point is that, that, that your failures and your successes all should always point back to the gospel. And that his whole point isn't that you're going to always have it together. And so if, we, if we're pre, in our body, now one, one thing I'm going to say, we are, I think our body's good at being serious about Jesus. And, and our struggle, I want to make sure that we never add upon the gospel, because we can't be just telling people they need to do more of this and do more of that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is in your failures and in your successes, do you go back to the gospel? Do you keep fighting? That's the gospel. The gospel is that do you keep trusting Christ for your failures? Do you keep trusting Christ because of your successes? Not because, oh, my goodness, I got to do all these things. Now I got to be this standard. It's no, I'm that standard by God's grace. Let me continue to trust him even when I totally fall beneath that standard. Look what he says here. If indeed, you know, when you're in, when you're in school, those if clauses, guys, remember those if clauses, right? They're huge. He says, like, no, let me go back, see if I can do this little action real quick. Oh, man, I messed it up, didn't I? I am scared to go back. All right, y'all can look at your Bibles. If you look at your Bibles, it said, he, he tells us, he says, you are holy and blameless and above reproach, right? I made you for these reasons. You'll be that if. If you do what? If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You see that, guys? I mean, isn't that cool? He's saying, listen, stop, stop the work. Well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to continue to distrust me. I want you to continue to, to focus on me. I want you to continue to say, man, I am a wreck, and I'm just praying that the gospel is true. I'm praying that Jesus is my king. I'm praying that Christ died for me. I'm praying that the flesh that was crucified in death for me. I'm praying that that was for me. I'm praying that, that I don't have to die. I don't have to be more perfect. I can just trust in what God has done. 
So when you look at your families, your relationships, and you see the fallen, the, the brokenness and the things of that, that nature, I'm proposing we, we need more gospel centrality. We need more of focusing in on Christ and not more about what we can do and what we have done. So look what he says. He says, if you continue. Now, I want to I hit some of the, um, the words here. He gives this condition. If you continue to faith. So faith, I love this, is a continuum of faith, not flawless, right? Trusting Christ. And when you think about this, and I don't know if the, the slide's up here, um, I'll read a couple of verses. There's going to be like three or four verses here. Uh, Philippians 12 and 13 says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but uh, now much more of my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So notice that. He's saying, continue to persevere. And actually, God's the one who's going to give you the power to persevere. Continue on. He says, um, in John, he talks about the sheep hearing his voice. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give my uh, eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And for, in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer for these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced, look what he says here, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You see that? It's the sense, I love the sense of like, that, that, like almost like a person who says, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you my life now. Okay, here it is. And so now, no matter what I'm going through, the things that's happening in my life, I'm going to trust that you're going to guard that, that you're going to allow me to finish. You're going to allow me to endure until that day. He puts the whole focus on God. God, I'm trusting you that I'll make it to the end and I'll endure because of you. Do you see that? Now, I must say, when I think of, uh, of this, I, I think of our body, and I'm just like, man, this is, this is probably, uh, probably the biggest, this is going to always be the biggest struggle. I know tension in my life. And I think it's going to be one of the biggest struggles in our life because I think the Bible's already told on us. I mean, we see this reality of perseverance being a huge issue in the Bible, right? Because the question is, like, uh, I think someone once said, like, like perseverance or endurance or, like, uh, that continual sense of, like, trying to persevere is when is, is you've done the work and then you're still doing the work and you, of the work that you're tired, of, you're tired of doing the work in which you've already done. So you've already done all this hard work and it's been hard, but then you're asked to still do the work that you're already tired of doing. And I feel, like, I feel like the sense of Christian perseverance, us being in the community here and figuring out what does it look like uh, to, to, have, to be steadfast and holy, uh, steadfast and continuing and stable, um, is going to always be something we're going to really have to struggle with together as a body. What is it like for us to experience joy while we fight the fight of faith here? I'm going to go into it um, in a moment, but I think this is one of our biggest, one of, it's going to be one of our biggest issues as we fight the fight of fight, uh, faith together. Um, so let's look at those words. He gives words to us. He says, if indeed, continue, gives us words like stable, steadfast, not shifting. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think oh, in, in the epistles you see this, this, this mindset of like you got to keep on keeping on? You see it in Revelations. You know, the person who, the, the, the overcomer will receive the kingdom. You see the sense of being stable and continuing and steadfast. Why do you think there's so much language toward that end? If it was easy, if the, if the, if the, now not the life, not the Christian life that we formulate where we get the gospel at no cost, but the Christian life where the gospel is central, 
obviously, for some reason, seems extremely difficult because Paul is saying, and the whole book of Hebrews is basically, hey, Jewish people, no matter what they tell you to do, make sure you follow Jesus because that Jewish Messiah, he is your savior. Even if your head gets cut off, make sure you follow because it's true. That's the whole book of, of Hebrews. It's him encouraging people to fight the fight of faith no matter what happens because of the truth of Jesus. Now, here's some assumptions from the text. First, the assumption is Paul is not addressing the unbeliever, but he's addressing those that's tasted Christ, right? So he's addressing many of us right now. Okay, that's an assumption. Second assumption is that there's a high chance that each one of us will come to a fork in a road of endurance. Okay, I think that's an assumption. The assumption is that each one of us in this room, continuously in our life, are going to come to a fork in the road where God says, are you going to keep on keeping on for Jesus or are you going to give up? I think those are some fair assumptions. So here's the question. Why are you a Christian? Because the assumption of perseverance asks that question. And here's why it asks that question. Because Paul is saying something to these, he's saying to these first century Colossians, he's saying, now wait a minute, some of you guys are, are, wanting, are wanting Jesus for the wrong reason, right? You want more wisdom, you want more insight, you want more knowledge. And he's saying, you know what you get? Is you get a life of suffering and sacrifice, <laughs> that you, and, you, and you get to carry your cross, so wait, so the question is, is it easy to, 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 to bring up or to formulate a subjective Jesus versus objective Jesus? Of course it is. We see it all throughout our lives. We see it as, as, as we talk with people all the time. A lot of us come to Jesus, and it doesn't matter if he's real or not, as long as he helps me with my house, as long as he helps me have a girlfriend, as long as he helps me pay my bills, as long as he helps me have a holistic life, as long as he helps me not be addicted to pornography, as long as he helps me have a lot of friendships, as long as he helps me be popular, as long as he helps me stop being depressed all the time, as long as he helps me not be, uh, you know, commit suicide, as long as he helps me uh, like gain more weight or lose weight, as long as he helps me in my identity in the community, as long as he helps me build a church. And we come to Jesus for all these different reasons, and it's almost like, I don't care if Jesus answers the prayer or Satan, as long as the prayer is answered. I just want this stuff. And I don't really care who provides it. We see it all the time. That's what you see when you look at Puff Daddy. That's what you see when you look at Oprah. Right? They're saying, well, how about this song by Kanye West, a new song? And I don't know how the words go, but I know he says something at the end like, hey, I've been talking to Jesus so long, and look at my life. I guess he's talking back. What is he saying? He has warped his mind in thinking that actually because he's rich, that he's close to God. See, I want God because he's made me rich and he's done it. Cool. So guess what I'll keep doing? I'll keep serving that God. And I'll call him Jesus. But the question is, is he really Jesus? Absolutely not. See, those are individuals who get faith and who want Jesus because of what he can provide. That's called, that's called subjective subjective faith. That means your faith, the stimulus of your faith, the catalyst of your faith is based on what you receive or don't receive. It's circumstantial, right? So that means soon you, you love Jesus and you go into the conferences, but soon as your son dies, you don't love Christ anymore because your, your stimulus was my life is supposed to be happy. I'm supposed to have stuff. 
You love Christ until your marriage goes off and your wife cheats on you, and all of a sudden, I don't love Christ. Look what happened to my life. See, the stimulus there wasn't Christ. It was your relationship. And so this text here is saying that, guess what? People who persevere, people who, are, who continue, who are stable and steadfast, are people who understand the objective reality that no matter what happens in the world, in my life, or in around me, I follow Christ because that man actually rose from the dead for me. He died for me. This is an objective reality. It doesn't change based on if my man stays. It doesn't change based on if I have an education or not. It doesn't change based on if I can take care of my, my kids or not. It doesn't change based on anything external because Christ is the rock, and so we stand on him. And that's why he uses those terms like stable, immovable, because he's central. And if we're clinging to him, we won't move. So let me ask you. Why are you a Christian? Why? Because people liked you really well in this church? Because you had a couple good dinners? Because somebody blessed you at outreach? Because you get to serve in this community? Because you, you're humanitarian? Because, you, because you, you, you're smart? Because, and God keeps blessing you? Or is it because he's the king of the universe? And now you being a nurse and you being a teacher and you being an engineer, all of those things now are under the, the kingship of Christ. So like you can't see so you can't look at this text and then compartmentalize your life. That everything is supposed to be focused on the kingdom of God. Everything's supposed to be about King Jesus. If it's subjective reality, see what he's doing? See what he's done? I'm, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stop. He takes you to 15. He shows you. He builds up Christ, makes much of Christ, exalts Christ, blows Christ up in his rightful state. Why? So then he shows you what he's done in, in your life presently, in, in, like down in the dirt. He said, then he came and he died for you and me. And he, so that risen, beautiful Savior gives you, he dies, he gives us a call, and he says, now. Okay, now, you, it's going to be hard, so you've got to be stable. You've got to know that what I told you in 15 to 20 is real so that you can live a life of radical obedience to Christ because everybody's going to think you're crazy. Think about the concept of worldliness, guys. That's why we struggle. The, 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 even the concept of worldliness is when worldliness looks normal and holiness looks weird, you know that we're experiencing worldliness in our life. But God is saying our life's supposed to be so enamored, so washed in Christ, supposed to be so enamored by the glory of Jesus that everything we're doing is supposed to be about Christ. That's not fanaticism. That's Christianity. That's Christianity, Jamie. You don't leave here and then go back and be a teacher and be a nurse and kind of give a little something here to Jesus, a little something here to Jesus. You still don't get the gospel if this is true. Your whole life, this should be a centrality of your life. Be, be like this, 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 this focus on the cross and the resurrection, everything. And that's why, guys, that's why we're not apologetic to ask you to move and serve this community. If this is reality, we're saying that should be a joy. That's why, we, that's why we're not apologetic about being in people's lives and trying to push you toward Christ. You know how many times we have people say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to another church because y'all are kind of intense. What do you mean? And, a natural, and what we try to do is make it a, a, an issue of legalism. Holiness isn't legal. This isn't legalism. This is, this is Christianity, guys. So 
Why are you a Christian? I think that's a good uh, question to ask at the end. The objective reality of Jesus must inform our subjective feelings. As we live life, man, to live life and be bitter and angry and dogging each other and, and do making your decisions, oh, it breaks my heart. I want, you know, I, I counsel some of our body, and I, and I, and I see us, um, we put ourselves in isolation, and then we make decisions based on ourselves because we kind of give up. And I'm begging you, um, I'm begging you to man, be stable and movable, to understand what God has done, and to allow your life to be centered on that reality, on Christ. Paul wants our successes and our failures to bring you back to the gospel. That's his goal. Paul wants everything that we do to say, I'm going to point back to Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why we live and have our being. And the scriptures are clear. To live outside of that reality is fake. It's not even humanity. And my role as your leader, uh, our role as your team, is to say, we want, we want to make sure you're living in reality. And we want to keep pushing and encouraging us and saying, guys, we want to make sure that there's gospel centrality in all of our lives. And we want to have an environment that allows you to get Jesus. Whether you receive him or not is another issue, but we want to have an environment where you get Christ. Uh, so be of good cheer. Your Savior has overcome the world. Hey, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to respond in worship uh, with tithing and offering and also uh, in communion. Uh, we're going to continue on. I want to ask you to, uh, hey, invite people to the story of God as we're in Colossians so people can be getting the gospel. I uh, hope the gospel is clear. Is that the Bible is about good Jesus and bad people and look what Jesus has done. And then at your life, there's something, about, it's not just, oh, God died cool, but now he's like, he's catapulted you. <laughs> he wants to, he's giving you a purpose. And then our lives are centered around Christ. But we don't do it. We don't pull ourselves up our bootstraps, but we live a life of faith. We live a life of faith and faith and faith. And we continue to trust Christ until the day he returns and says, well done, good and faithful servant. I validate you. You're not crazy. Actually, the world was. Here's what we're going to do. We're gonna